It's hard living a frugal life. I'm constantly questioning myself whenever I do things like taking leftovers from a free corporate lunch or doing date night at 4 p.m. so we can get happy hour pricing. Although these frugal practices, I believe, are simply the journey that all 20-somethings need to live through, it's not what I want to be doing forever. But what if I told you you could live it up now while also accomplishing your financial goals, like paying off student loans or heavily investing to reach financial independence early? This could be a reality with a strategy called geo-arbitrage. Ignore the fancy words, this concept is simple. Have a steady income in a strong currency, and then spend that money in a cheaper country. Let me give you an example. Imagine you live in New York City. You're making $70,000 a year, and your monthly costs are $5,100. Doesn't leave you a whole lot of room for additional investing or savings or paying off debt. You do have a work from home job and you can easily pack up and leave. So you do, and you decide to go to Mexico City where your monthly costs drop to $1,900. That's a difference of $3,200 or $38,000 a year. A decision like this magnifies your savings rate and allows you to make some serious progress on your financial goals in just a few short years. All of this without sacrificing the comforts like a spacious apartment, or trying new restaurants a couple times a week. If you're open to an idea like this, but you don't have a portable job, or you're not ready to move on from where you live right now, this same strategy could be applied to reduce your final FI target number. So instead of needing $1.5 million, maybe you only need 700,000 to retire to a more affordable city. This is exactly what today's guest did. Rachel Covert retired early at the age of 36 from her high-stress job in fashion and decided to move away from expensive New York City. She has been fairly nomadic the last few years, but currently resides in Portugal. This episode, we dive deep into geo-arbitrage. Rachel shares some examples of low-cost-of-living cities that you could move to, prices you can expect to pay, how to prepare for a change like this, and so much more. Once again, if you are adventurous and have some career flexibility, this could be a really powerful strategy you can employ right now. So let's learn some more about it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the early retiree and world traveler, Rachel Covert. You know those moments where you think, I wish I would have learned this in school? Those are the topics that we love to talk about. Join me each week as I interview experts sharing their strategies for solving problems that us young adults will face throughout our 20s and 30s. So what are you waiting for? If you want new episodes about adulting advice every Monday, hit that follow button. Okay, so I know you're big on experiences. It seems like the one purchase that you're really never thinking twice about. If there's something you want to try and do, you do it. And I've heard ballet, I've heard violin lessons, I've heard art classes, and of course, surfing. Is there a unique experience that you recently tried that's really made your day that you're stoked to try again at some point in time? I don't know if this is like exactly the kind of answer you're looking for, but we took surf skating lessons, which is like a particular type of skateboarding. And if you look on my Instagram, you will see it is featured a lot because I spend a lot of time and money doing it. Mm -hmm. And we did it for my boyfriend's 40th birthday. And then 
we were like, well, that was really fun. And then we bought like a class pack and then another class pack and then another <laughs> class pack. And now we do it. I mean, it's winter, so it's harder. You can't do it when it's rainy. It's not so pleasant in the cold and all that stuff. But it was like that something I would have ever pictured myself doing as an adult, like skating on ramps and trying to like learn how to maneuver on a skateboard and it's a special skateboard. We actually even bought one of the skateboards like really next level on this hobby that I did not see coming. <laughs> so surf skating, is that what you called it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a special type of skateboard that has the front truck is super flexible and super mobile. So it's supposed to mimic how you can move your feet on a surfboard so that you can practice your surf like stances and surf moves on dry land. Interesting. That's cool. And is this really popular with surfers that are like routinely surfing? Super popular and super popular with folks who want to surf more than they can. So like if you live inland and getting to the beach is a pain in the butt, then having a surf skate, you can just take it to your local skate park, practice. It's also just super fun. And it's really gratifying when you make it to like the next level in something. And I think as adults, there are very few instances where we can like track our levels and track our progress. Maybe like fitness is one of those things. But with surf skating, it's like you either landed it or you didn't land it. Like either you did the trick or you didn't, or you did the maneuver or you didn't. And like, it's awesome to be like, oh my God, like three months ago, I would have never been able to do this. And now it's like, you know, it's cool. I like it. I absolutely love skill building through hobbies. I think it's just like so much fun. The gratification that you get from learning something and actually seeing progress, especially in, if you put it in this like low stakes environment, of course, like running a business, I'm always learning new skills and that's super critical and important, but just having this like kind of low stakes or no stakes environment that I'm just having fun and trying things. I've I picked up longboarding and skating both over the last 10 years. I've snowboarded. Rock climbing has been a big one for me. Different hobbies and interests of mine. And it's like so fun to like look back and be like, wow, I actually am capable of being a complete beginner and knowing nothing. And then actually like a year later, having real progress made on something that I found interesting. Totally. And one of the things that I think is kind of like the unsung hero of adult hobbies is that it is a really good way to know if you're using your money well. So like you have to be really intentional about your spending. If you're going to like take up, say, rock climbing or longboarding or whatever, any, you know, who knows? People could be doing anything from axe throwing to pottery. You are choosing to spend your money on that thing. And then you are putting your time into the same money versus just saying like, I'm tired, I'm gonna order takeout, right? Like if you've already spent your money and you're holding your money to do this thing that you're really passionate about, I really believe it makes it easier to stick to your financial goals because so much money is spent just in boredom and in having no direction and no goals. Yeah, Yeah, and it's such a shame because that's, I think the real power of money lies in that is like bringing real joy and fulfillment and excitement to your life. And yeah, just the door dashing convenience food just doesn't fill my cup like that. <laughs> Same. I get very little like the word I use is utility because my brother is an economist. So like he uses that word a lot. But I get really low utility out of spending money on delivered food. I get really high utility out of experiencing a really cool restaurant with my friends or with my partner. So it's like, again, it's not about eating out versus eating in. It's about like, what utility did I get out of this, right? And for other folks who maybe people like parents, people who have young children, delivery might give you a huge amount of utility, right? And so it's different for every person, which is, I think, you know, one of the reasons why we say personal finance is personal. But for me, I get a lot of utility out of 
learning skills and especially those skills that I can like watch the growth in, in a very like clear and measurable way. So we're talking about like an interesting topic today that I haven't directly, I think, approached at one point or another. And I'm, I talk a lot about frugality on the show and of course, living below your means and investing the difference, all the important things. But oftentimes, especially to 20 somethings, I get the pushback like, I kind of want to live my life now. Like, I don't want to restrict my food budget. I don't want to restrict my hobbies. I don't want to restrict all of these things. But at the same time, they're in this conundrum. They know that they need to be preparing for the future. They need to be setting their future self up for success. And then I ran across this term that you didn't coin, but that you've made noticeable to me, which is called geo-arbitrage, which is a super fancy word for essentially saying moving from a high cost of living area to a low cost of living area and taking advantage of the difference in pricing. I love this idea because you don't really have to give anything up outside of maybe the movement, the geographical area that you're living in. So you could still live in the same like-kind two-bedroom apartment in New York City versus Richmond, Virginia, but save $1,000, $1,500 a month on something like this. So I think it's a really fascinating concept, and I wanted to bring it into the podcast today because if people have the flexibility in the movement and they're able to do something like this, this could be a way that they could be accomplishing their financial goals, their savings rates, et cetera, while not necessarily giving up on the things that they actually want to spend their money on. A hundred percent. Totally. And I think it's really interesting because I think the number one thing that I hear from folks when they say, oh, I could never do that is I want to be near my family or I can't leave my friends, which I a hundred percent respect and totally understand. However, for the price that you are paying to live near your family and friends, how many times could you go visit them or take a vacation with them with the amount of money that you are saving and working towards your other goals? right? I don't say this to be negative, but you just have to understand that you're making a choice. You're choosing whatever your priority is in this moment. And if your priority genuinely is living near your friends and family, understand that you're choosing to funnel your money towards that. And no shame in that whatsoever. I just personally did not make that choice. I chose not to do that. And it has given me a lifestyle that I wanted. So if it's something where you're really struggling with your cost of living where you are, Instead of being so stressed and trying to cut down in every single other part of your life, why not change that one big expense, which is your rent, your cost of living, your mortgage? Yeah, I agree. And I do totally understand the the friends and family argument. I want people to be able to delineate. Is it a familiarity and a comfort thing that you're afraid to make the move? Or is it truly, it's really important for you to spend that quality time? Like if you are at your sister's house, you know, four times a week. And that relationship, that in-person relationship means a whole lot to you. I get that. But I audited it whenever I was kind of making the decision to move from St. Louis to San Diego originally. And I'm like, yeah, this is gonna be really hard. And I'm gonna miss my friends. But honestly, I see most of my friends maybe every other week or so. And it might be for a few hours on a Saturday evening. I could also invite that friend and come home and probably get just amount of FaceTime with them over the course of the year while also living, well, my example is bad because I ended up going kind of reverse your arbitrage going from St. Louis to San Diego, but I quickly figured this out yeah. in my early 20s and reversed that decision when I moved to Austin. But yeah, I could go and save a bunch of money living somewhere else and still reap the benefits of getting tons of FaceTime by inviting them to the place that I'm at because usually a lot of people want to come to, I lived in San Diego, now Austin. 
it's not hard to convince anyone to come visit me and see me because there are two great destinations that people like to check out. But also at the same time, you can always just go back home and spend a lot of quality time with them back home and actually not feel stressed about your money while you're doing it. Totally. And like, I've actually found, I think I spend more time with my family now that I live far away because I'm really dedicating time to it. When I lived a four hour drive from my parents, I saw them like two or three times a year for a long weekend. Maybe I'd see them for five or six days around a holiday. But other than that, I would go months without seeing them. And I still go months without seeing them. But now when I see them, I see them for 10 days or two weeks. And it's like for hours and hours and hours at a time, you know, like even if I don't spend the whole day with them, I have breakfast with them, they go do their own thing, they come home, we have dinner together. And it's a really different type of time spent together. And I think for me, because it's such long periods of time, I'm actually getting to hang out with them more instead of feeling this like pressure of like, okay, I have three hours to see this person. Then I need to go to my next friend's house who lives near my parents or whatever. And it was like this really stressful visit. And now it's just like very chill, a lot of time hanging out, drinking coffee. And it's just, it's a completely different way of experiencing being with people when you have these long stretches and you live far apart. Let's get into the tactical and maybe let's first paint an example using you. So you were living in New York City and you decided to geo-arbitrage, well, to a couple of different places, but now you're in Portugal. Can you just give me a rough estimate on how much you were spending in New York City versus how much you're spending in Portugal now? Yeah, absolutely. So ironically, my rent is not that different. I had a really cheap apartment in Brooklyn that I was very diehard about finding. And that was actually one of the ways I was able to get close to Phi or get to Phi was by keeping my cost of living down obsessively while I lived in New York City. But every other feature of my life in Portugal is wildly less expensive. So in New York City, I was spending an average of probably $5,000 a month between rent, transportation, groceries, whatever I needed to do for my cost of living, it ranged between four dollars and $5,000 a month. Here in Portugal, I am spending in an extraordinarily expensive month, I would spend close to $4,000. So it's less than half and my quality of life and the amount that I am doing for that $4,000 is insane. Like that includes all of my surfing lessons, my language lessons, all of the travel, eating out as much as I want to, like really no holds barred. And I think if I wanted to live even leaner, it would be very, very easy to live on significantly less money here, especially if you were willing to be a little bit further from like the center of a town, basically. Yeah. Oh, and I know you were grinding it in New York City too, you know, routinely saying no to friends whenever they were going out to eat or, you know, going to hang at the bars, saying no to weddings that were out of state because you're like, nope, just can't afford to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I totally get that. And I understand being super, super lean and still like bleeding out cash and being like, what the heck? I don't even like have the experiences or the things to show for this. Well, I mean, just groceries alone, like to buy a cauliflower in New York City is like $6. And they're like 89 cents here. You know what I mean? It's just like stuff like that that makes such a huge difference. And like in New York, I did go out to dinner. I did see my friends, but I was always the friend who was like, hey, would you guys be open to going to this restaurant instead? All of the entrees at this restaurant are $20 or less instead of this other one where entrees start at $28. And it's like these little amounts of money that just add up so fast in New York. The Ubers, like don't even get me started on you go out for dinner, you have a few drinks, it's like 1130, you don't want to wait for the subway, you're tired. And so you just hop in an Uber. And it's like, all of these little things are contributing to this astronomical cost of living. 
and you mentioned Portugal, but I think there's probably even more affordable places if people are adventurous and willing to move into different areas. I hear something like Vietnam or Central America as being a really great spot to take a huge advantage of geo-arbitrage. Do you have a couple of cities in mind that you might want to throw out that people could consider and maybe some rough pricing on what they could expect in a city like that? Yeah, absolutely. So in Vietnam, for example, if you wanted to live in Saigon, which is also called Ho Chi Minh, depending on who you ask, you can comfortably, comfortably live for $2,000 a month. And definitely you can live for less than that. Depending on where you want to live in Central and South America, you can also have a really, really good quality of life, you know, for under $2,000 a month. Some of the places that come to mind off the top of my head for Central and South America are Ecuador. So Ecuador is a huge one. There's tons of expats in Ecuador. There's lots of different places depending on what you want in Ecuador as well. So you can live in Quito, which is the main city. And again, like it depends. Do you want to live like a king or live like a prince, right? So if you want to live like a king, it is going to cost you money. You're going to need $3,000 a month. If you're willing to live in a flat chair, if you're willing to live a bit further out, you can live for $1,500 a month. This includes having health insurance. This includes having a housekeeper, just crazy things like that. Now, if you wanted to move to Thailand, there are lots of cities that have lots of expats in Thailand. Thailand is another great option if you want to live in Asia, which Asia is good if you are either on the kind of job where you don't have to work from nine to five on US hours, or you're a night owl, because remember the time zones really do matter. But you can live, again, very comfortably for under $1,500 a month. Now, if you want to be in US time zones, one of my favorite spots is Mexico City. You can get an awesome apartment in Mexico City for $800 a month or less. The food, again, very inexpensive. So it depends on like what neighborhood you want to live in. Obviously, Mexico City is huge. So you have to take sort of that into consideration here. I throw these numbers out. All of these places are quite large. If you want to live in a smaller Mexican city, I think often we overlook some of these cities like Oaxaca, which is beautiful. It's like a stunning city and an even lower cost of living than Mexico City. So aside from needing to understand the visa requirements, which I'm not going to go into now because I'm not as familiar with all of these different countries, but the thing to bear in mind is that you can have an absolutely amazing quality of life in a lot of different places for under $2,000 a month and in many places under $1,000 a month. Just remember, you are going to want to fly home and see your family. So set aside some money for that. Look into the price of the flights and understand, okay, if I want to go home for Christmas, I need to save, say, 1000 bucks to get home round trip for Christmas. Or even if you're coming from a place like Thailand, it could be even more. So just remember that you do have to account for that in your monthly spend. So you're not surprised when you're like, oh, yeah, well, I, I only anticipated spending you know, $20,000 a year to live here. But now I'm realizing I need $5,000 a year to visit my family. So just keep that in mind and be realistic with yourself as well. You know, if you have a young family and you're going to need a nanny and you're going to want to send your kids to international school, that is very different than if you are 24 years old, single, you're going to teach English online, or you're going to take your job that you have right now that's already remote. You know, you can really, really, really reduce your cost of living. And one of my favorite things to do with all that extra money is either invest the heck out of your retirement accounts or pay down some of those high interest student loans, especially for folks who unknowingly did not realize that these private student loans would be a huge burden in adulthood. Imagine what would happen if you could put $1,000 or $1,500 a month towards those private student loans simply by being on an awesome adventure, living in Vietnam, living in Thailand, living in Cambodia, living in Mexico, living in Ecuador, you know, any of these places. 
living in Cape Town in South Africa. You know, these are the kinds of things that you could do living in Istanbul. Istanbul is another one of my favorites that I didn't mention. Amazing cost of living in Istanbul. Again, it's in that one to $2,000 a month range. And you could take half of your salary, right? And put it towards those high interest private student loans that are eating you alive. Yeah, I think especially Americans that haven't left the United States and or even spent, even if they've left, but really only as a traveler for vacations or something, don't realize how expensive living in the United States really is. And we like, we throw out like these numbers, like a thousand and two thousand. And once again, you can live like a prince. You can maybe even live like a king in some other countries. One to two thousand dollars on total monthly expenses in the United States. Like, you got to really consider where you're living and what your situation is if you don't want to be completely handcuffed by a monthly expense budget like that. I mean, as a financial coach, I hardly run across someone whose monthly expenses are below $3,000 a month. I do come across people, you know, if they're living in a house share, they don't have kids, you know, you can have that kind of $2,000-ish a month budget, but it is certainly not living like a prince or a princess, right? It's very much (laughs) like your house is okay, you're a bit outside of the metropolitan area, nothing is wrong with it, but it's not you know, is it what you imagine for yourself as an adult? And I'm for, I'm sure that for a lot of us, we aren't living the adult lives that we were kind of told, like, oh, go to college, get this degree. You're going to be able to do all these things with this degree. And you're finding, oh, an entry-level marketing job pays $42,000 a year. And I have to live <laughs> in New York. How am I going to do this? You know? So really thinking outside the box and understanding that, you know, when you live in another country, you're going to be exposed to other cultures and there are frustrations that go along with that and in some ways you're maybe like paying in air quotes paying for that but i think on the flip side if your finances are the thing that's really holding you back and you have a little bit of an adventurous spirit like i guess i feel like you have nothing to lose to get out there and try something new and i think the fascinating thing i mean almost everyone that listens to the show is they're in their 20s they're in kind of the beginning or middle part of their financial journey especially a lot of people are are trying to reach financial independence but geo arbitrage could be approached in two different ways you could either use geo arbitrage right now especially if your job is portable and you're living in a high cost of living city right now and you can move somewhere else and still work remotely and drastically reduce your expenses, you can use geo arbitrage then to take the difference, the savings rate, and dump that into either high interest debt or investing and kind of expedite the process of getting to financial independence earlier. Or if maybe that's not something you can do right now, you don't have a portable job, or you are really comfortable where you're at right now, you're just not ready to make a change like moving to a new city or a new country, you can also drastically reduce your final FI number, your final independence number, financial independence number, knowing that you are going to leave the city whenever you hit that and move to one of these more affordable places. Because right now you might be thinking, I need to save one and a half million dollars. So, you know, per the 4% rule, I can comfortably pull out $60,000 so I can live like I want to live right now. But going somewhere like Mexico City or Quito or somewhere else, you could cut that number in half, essentially, you know, be expecting to pay roughly $30,000 a year in expenses. And now your fine number isn't $1.5 million, but $750,000. And that could also really cut the timeline down for you. A hundred percent. And the other point of this is like, 
it's pretty unlikely that you're gonna want to never ever work again. So what does it look like? Let's say that you just don't have it in you to get to 750,000, right? But you know you can earn money online, you've been doing a little consulting, maybe inside your own role, and you can do it remotely. Um, what does it look like to move to you know, Spain on their new digital nomad visa and live in a, you know, Valencia in Spain, beautiful city, very affordable. What does it look like to do something like that and work remote 20 hours a week? How much closer does that get you to FI? And it also gives you the flexibility to kind of test. What does this feel like for me? Is this something I'm open to? And some people move overseas and realize, nope, this is not for me. I really want my creature comforts back. And that's okay. You'd want to learn that, I think, earlier rather than later. So you don't want to have your retirement plan be, I'm going to move to Quito. And then you get to Quito and you're like, wow, this is just too different, too uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm too far from my grandkids, whatever it is it's a much harder transition at 50 than it is at 27 or 35 or you know one of these ages where maybe you are a little bit less tied down. So it's also something to consider that you don't have to be fully retired. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind, right? Like what does that look like for you? Yeah, honestly, I'm considering geo arbitrage and just knowing my girlfriend as well. She is never someone that's satisfied living in the same place for too long. She's very nomadic by that sense. At minimum, we have to travel a ton. But I'm definitely considering geo-arbitrage as part of my Coast Fi plan. And Coast Fi being you built enough up in your nest egg that if you just let that continue to grow through compound interest over 5, 10, 20 years, you're naturally going to get to your Fi number. You don't even have to invest any more into that nest egg in order to do something like that. I'm definitely considering geo-arbitrage and in this whole methodology. I could go somewhere else you know, really cut down back on my hours and the amount of that I work, I could do something else. I could work at a plant store just part time and make a little bit of money just to pay for my expenses and give my investments some time to naturally grow over time. But once again, I get to go and travel and experience a new city while I'm doing it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we sometimes lose the forest for the trees here. And that is like, why are you trying to retire early? Is it so you can travel? So if what you really want is traveling, why are we waiting until retirement to do that? How can you infuse more travel into your life right now? And like you said, you know, your girlfriend loves being nomadic. If you did do something like a digital nomad visa to Portugal or Spain, you're in a home base that gives you incredibly easy access to all of Europe and North Africa. From where I am outside of Lisbon, you know, it's a hop, skip and a jump. Or if you went to Vietnam, you can take a $30 flight from Vietnam to Korea or maybe a $60 flight. You can fly from, you know, Korea to Japan for another $25. So it really changes your outlook on what the purpose is of your home base, right? Like is the purpose of your home base to give you access to lots of other things that you are really excited to see? Or is the purpose of your home base, for some folks, it's, you need the roots, right? There are people out there who want the roots. And I'm not that person. I'm the person who wants access. And so I identified that about myself. And it's totally okay if you are a person that wants roots. So think about your geo-arbitrage differently. Maybe you want roots near a major airport so that it's easier for you to see your family and friends and for them to come and see you, right? Because you become a pretty hot destination, you know, when you're the friend who has relocated to Nicaragua or relocated to Guatemala, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> I need to get, get on the calendar to come and visit, right? So you just have to kind of think through also like, what are your goals in getting to Coast Fire? What are your goals in living abroad? Because it's totally acceptable to have a different goal than me, but just think through why you're doing this and how it's going to help you get to, you know, kind of your bigger picture plan. 
Yeah, let's keep hammering home this thread right here, because I know this is something really personal to you. You had a diagnosis that really kind of like sparked a desire for you to be like, you know what? Let's get this traveling thing going right now. Can you paint a picture of kind of where you were at in your current journey, kind of what the diagnosis was, and then kind of what happened after the fact? Yeah, absolutely. So I was diagnosed with a condition called rheumatoid arthritis when I was 29. And it is that condition where, you know, you see like old people who have really gnarled hands and they can't open and close their hands anymore. That is rheumatoid arthritis typically. And so I had this epiphany at 29 and I had been, you know, using my 401k and kind of haphazardly using my Roth IRA and I'd been working for seven years. So I had a decent amount of money invested. I think, you know, I probably had a little less than 100K invested at this point. So, you know, I was doing well for all intents and purposes. Plus, I graduated in 2007. So I graduated into a very big down market. So I invested (laughs) in a low during a lot of my career, which was really lucky for me. And I just had this like epiphany, like I am trading all of my useful functional years under fluorescent lights in front of a computer screen so someone else can make money. And this is just very deeply not what I want my life to be. I want to travel and I know that I am not going to be, or I don't know this, but the way it looks right now is, you know, when I'm 60 and 70, I may not be in the physical condition that I thought I was going to be in. And I may not be able to go on these big hikes. I might not be, you know, traveling as much at that age because I might be in pretty significant discomfort. And so I just had this epiphany that was like, well, it's going to have to be now. What do I need to do? to make this happen way sooner for me? And what does that kind of look like? What are my options? And a few things did fall into place, like full disclosure, I did get lucky in a lot of ways, but also I worked to make the things I wanted happen. And I think sometimes we forget, we're waiting for that luck to kick in and we forget that sometimes you make your own luck. Yeah, what did you mean by luck? Just the right timing in the market or different things like that? Well, so for one thing, I got headhunted for a job. I was aggressively looking for jobs on LinkedIn, and I got headhunted for a job that paid a lot more than the job that I had at the time. And I was very, very unhappy in my job. The job I got headhunted for was not a job I would have ever chosen at the time. If you had said to me, hey, do you want to go work for this company? I would have been like, no. But it ended up actually being a fantastic match for me. We did really well there. I became a vice president very quickly, was managing like a nine-figure fashion brand. And so my income went way up. And because I now knew that I had this fire goal, I was really able to control my cost of living and take my savings rate and really increase my savings rate. So, and I wasn't as careful at tracking my savings rate, but a minimum I was investing $3,000 a month. And there were months that I was investing five to 7,000, especially if I had a bonus or something. So I was really, really taking advantage of this opportunity that I had and not letting my lifestyle inflation creep up and get in the way of my fire goals. So that was one lucky thing that happened. And then the other lucky thing that happened. Rachel, that does not sound lucky. That sounds planned and and calculated and a lot of hard work. You probably create a lot of career capital and equity up until that point to actually make that decision. And I know what it's like to be having a lot of money come in, but also being very careful with how that money gets allocated. It's very, very easy for you to lifestyle creep, knowing that you can actually afford it. It's another thing when you're like, oh, I really can't afford this. I can't buy this. But it's one thing to, or it's another thing to be like, okay, I have enough that if I wanted to buy this, I could buy this. But there are these other goals that are more important to me right now. Absolutely. I think the luck for me was in getting headhunted. So I think (laughs) that was really lucky. And getting headhunted and listening to the headhunter. I was not too bullheaded to say, 
oh, this job isn't good enough for me because it was just not something I was familiar with. And I was looking for something that felt familiar and it felt really unfamiliar. And so I thought, oh no, I don't know anything about this. I'm afraid of this. And I'm pretty good at pushing past my fears. I think that's like a huge pro tip. If you're young and there's a voice in the back of your head saying, you can't do this. This isn't for you. This is for other people. Do not listen to that voice. It is lying to you. You know, Trust me from personal experience, but I got lucky with the headhunting and then I really took it and ran with it. And I made sure I got the job, right? Once I realized what the financial opportunity was, I worked very hard to make sure that I got that job. But I think that's one of the things, especially that I hear from young people is it's just a struggle to get a job that pays well right now. And that's one of the things I think some of the listeners might be saying to themselves, yeah, I'm trying to get one of those six figure jobs. Thanks, Rachel. I know. (laughs) So, but yeah, I definitely understood what opportunity I had in front of me and I did not waste it. Any other luck? Was there another point that was coming for the luck standpoint? Yeah. So the other way that I got lucky was I fell in love with a foreigner. 10 out of 10 would recommend. We have <laughs> we have a nerdy love story. We met on a financial independence dating website. So we knew that our values were aligned. And that's really huge for, I don't know if any, if you've ever been in a relationship with someone where you really love them, but your values just weren't aligned. And especially when it comes to fire, that's a really tough one. Like finances are tough to navigate in a relationship. So for me, falling in love with someone who already was not from the US and did not live in the US, it made it much easier for me to just uproot my life and move overseas because I had some support. So I wasn't just going by myself to a new country. That being said, I know so many people who live here in Portugal who just came on their own because they knew it was right for them. And kudos to them for just being willing to take the risk because that's the scary part is the risk, right? So yeah, I got lucky. I fell in love with an awesome guy who was also a little bit of an inspiration for me to leave New York as well. That's fair. So let's talk about the leave. So at some point in time, you actually pulled the trigger and you said goodbye to this high paying job, all this comfort that was in New York City. I know it wasn't that easy for you to actually leave your employer and probably that identity that your career had as well. I I know many of us high performing working professionals, we have a lot of identity in our career and we do think we make an impact at the company that we're working for. And I know it's not an easy decision to leave, even if you are financially able to, and you are really excited about what's ahead. It's still a tough process. Can you kind of walk me through your thought process leading up to your decision? Yeah, absolutely. So you may not be surprised to learn that there was a spreadsheet involved. So basically, <laughs> so basically, we, my partner and I made a spreadsheet that we call the spreadsheet of joy that we looked at what happens when we combine our finances. And it was actually surprising. We had significantly more. Obviously, two folks together are going to be a stronger force than a single person. But that's not to say if you're single that you cannot do this because I'm a huge advocate for particularly single women kind of taking control of their finances and building opportunity for themselves. But that's another conversation. So we made this spreadsheet, we realized how much money we had. And I was 35 already at the time. And I just thought to myself, like, I'm not lucky in the way that I met my partner when I was 25. I haven't had a decade with him. I need to start prioritizing this part of my life. Now I've put 15 years into this career. And we have the financial resources. Well, I have it by myself, and even more so combined, we have the financial resources for me to be able to take either a permanent break or a great sabbatical. And, you know, I just sort of looked at my life and I said, well, what do I want? Do I want to look back and say I was too chicken shit to sort of pursue (laughs) this person who I know I love very deeply because it was scary? I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Now, on the other hand, I worked very hard to get to where I was in this career. 
I did feel that I had a big impact, and I felt that my boss had really given me a lot of opportunities when he didn't have to. And so I think I felt some loyalty to him in not wanting to walk away from this opportunity that he'd given me. And, you know, I still appreciate that he did that for me. I definitely do. But I also, in hindsight, can see that he was getting the deal of the century with me. I'm sure the person that he hired, he had to pay her significantly more than he was paying me, which is the reality, right? If you've been in a job for six, seven, eight years, you are probably being underpaid, right? So But I had loyalty to him. I had loyalty to the women who reported to me on my team. I didn't have a single guy on my team. So the ladies on my team, I didn't want to leave them hanging. And I knew that that's what I was going to do. I was kind of saying, good luck, guys. Peace out. (laughs) So it was really difficult. And when I did resign, like I kind of teared up. It was like a really hard thing to do. And my manager actually said, you know, would you be okay with me announcing it to the company instead of you? Because it was like that big of a change for the company for me Mm. to be leaving. And people could not understand. They were like, you're doing what? You're leaving this job? You're leaving fashion? This is crazy. What are you doing? And I was like, I'm living the rest of my life. Like there's a life beyond t-shirts and jeans and sweaters, you know, and for me, it's time, like the time has come. It probably makes it even more complex that you were 36 at that time and people just can't really conceptualize retiring at that point. Like, what are you going to (laughs) do? And I'm sure you maybe got either some head tilts or even direct questions like, what are you doing right now? You're 36. You're at the top of your game. You have so much room to grow. The business that you run is doing phenomenally. You live in New York City. You studied this in college. You're like one of the few people who went to university, studied a thing, and then actually made a career out of it. Your student loans are paid off. Now it's just all gravy. Like, what are you doing? And definitely, I definitely got some questions about it. But I also think that I'm a pretty decisive person and I have very strong opinions. And I think when people kind of heard me give my reasoning and make my argument, like, with having rheumatoid arthritis, with knowing that my time was limited, I think people were kind of like, okay, I can see this. I suspect that if you were healthy and there, you had no reason, you know, like I have this underlying like desire to take advantage of my health now. If you didn't have that, I could see how folks would be like, this is just insane. Like, what are you doing? Why are you walking away from all of the check boxes on paper that other people would give everything to have? Ah, man, that got me fired up. And kind of the one final gentle reminder there is, although you didn't want to do it, you could always go back to that life. I promise you, I bet if you walked into those doors or called your old boss or, you know, called a few industry contacts, you could find a job pretty quickly back in that space if you really wanted to. So like, if someone's hearing that resonating with that, you feel like it's time, you can just temporarily decide for the next year it's time and then reevaluate at the end of that and decide is there something else I want to do work-wise? Do I want to go back to the work that I was at because I really miss it? I mean, there's just so much flexibility with every decision that we make. Most of them aren't permanent consequential decisions that are going to like have ramifications for the rest of your life. I could not agree with you more. And I think if you're seriously thinking about either pivoting careers or quitting and taking a sabbatical, if you are financially prepared for that break that you want to take, you are going to know very quickly whether it was the right choice or the wrong choice. You know, you will understand. And the other thing is two things can be true. 
right? Like it can be time for you to leave this job and you can also miss it after you go. And it's acceptable to have both of those feelings, which is absolutely how I felt. I still talked to the women on my team quite a bit for the first few months after I left. I visited them multiple times in the first year after I left because I felt very connected to these people. And I still do. I still think about them. And I think it's acceptable to understand that you aren't going to wake up one morning and be a different person. If you are very deeply tied to your current job or your current career and you feel very loyal to it, but you know you need to leave and you know it's time and you have an exciting opportunity to jump to, you can enjoy this new opportunity and also feel sad about closing that previous chapter. Very well said. This new chapter doesn't just involve surfboards and pina coladas. You do have some other work behind the scenes. You're, of course, pivoted your own career and, and you're making impact through some financial coaching. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and what you do to help and support other people? Yeah, absolutely. So I did, like air quotes, retire. I consider myself retired-ish in 2021. And while I was traveling that first year, I just kept meeting people over and over and over again who were like, you did what? how can you do this? This is crazy. Like they had never heard of the fire movement. They didn't think investing was for them. They didn't think that financial literacy was something that they should be investing time and energy into because they figured nobody knows this stuff. So it's totally fine for me not to know this stuff. And what I was finding was that there was this giant gap in the market where folks really do want access to this information, but they feel uncomfortable with the sources that are available to them. So they may not like their dad's financial advisor. They may not feel comfortable with, you know, the Dave Ramsey's of the world or the Suze Ormans of the world. They don't feel related. They can't connect to that. And so I started really slowly in 2021 doing some financial coaching to help people understand like, what is financial independence? Where are you at with your money? And what does that look like? And it's, it's evolved over the last couple of years. We're kind of coming up to the end of our second year here. And I'm really really working with folks who are earning enough money, but just aren't using it intentionally. So that's really what I do is help people to kind of take the money that they're already earning and harness it to live intentionally. So for some folks, that really does mean aggressively saving and investing. And for other folks, it means understanding what brings them joy and putting their money towards that. So it's been a really interesting journey. I have loved every minute of it. I've learned so much about how to run a business, how to run an online business, how to help people. I love seeing my clients flourish and it's been a really exciting new chapter of my life. That's cool. You also have a freebie for the listeners today. Do you wanna share about the freebie and where people can go and grab that? Yeah, absolutely. So the freebie is designed to help you kind of look backwards at how you used your money in a 30-day period because a lot of us think we really know where our money is going, but when we really put pen to paper or cursor to spreadsheet cell, it turns out that actually we're spending money in a lot of ways that we don't quite realize and it doesn't feel impactful. But those little things can really add up over time. So I have a spreadsheet that I call a lifestyle spotlight that I am excited to share with everyone who is listening. I will send the link to Justin to put into the show notes. And it gives you a pie chart. It gives you a bar graph. It shows you whether you're gaining or losing money every month because a lot of folks actually don't know if they're losing money every month. And so the idea is to help you to just get a sense of, okay, where am I? This is the most basic starting point is where am I right now so that you can make some decisions about what you actually want to do and what you can comfortably do. Yeah, taking control of the expenses and actually getting a sense of what's coming in and what's going out. I agree with you. The first step in really taking control of your money. And I don't think you have to do this forever. Like you don't have to transaction track like every single thing down to the penny all of the time. But if you aren't necessarily 
aware of exactly how much you might be spending in all the categories, I love something like a reflection on the last 30 day of spending and just getting a sense of where it's going and then asking yourself, is this aligned with what you want and how you want to spend your money? And then you can, of course, pivot and make decisions moving forward now that you have this information. So I'm really excited about that freebie. We'll put it in the show notes for anyone that wants to check that out. We love spreadsheets and things like this to help us track all the kind of things in the finance world. But Rachel, my final question for you, if you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Okay, so as a financial coach, I definitely would be teaching financial literacy. I know that seems like low-hanging fruit and really obvious, but one thing that I would definitely cover that I think we're really not covering for young adults today is how to negotiate and how to sell yourself. So one of the best ways to get to FI is to increase your income. And I am not a side hustler. I do not believe in side hustles. I think the best thing you can do is increase your actual salary so that you can still enjoy your free time. Because I think we get into this rabbit hole with fire where we think we have to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week on side hustles. And I know that this is an unpopular opinion. Some people really believe in the side hustle, but I think (laughs) learning to sell yourself, learning to negotiate your salary is one of the most important topics that I would cover in a financial literacy course, because at the end of the day, it's not in your employer's best interest to pay you as much as you're worth. And you have to be the person Mm. to take control of that decision. Yes, very well said. Well, Rachel, it was a blast having you on the show. Really excited for people to potentially explore geo-arbitrage and what that might mean for them in their own financial independence journey. But of course, if you want to go check out more of Rachel, it's Rachel underscore Talks Money on Instagram. And of course, go grab that freebie that's in the show notes. Rachel, thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the episode. As always, I appreciate your kind words. If you want to leave us a rating and review on your podcast player right now, that would absolutely make my day. If you want to find episode show notes, our blog, and other great resources, head over to tsirpodcast.com. If you have follow-up questions, an idea for a future episode, or just want to say hi, we have a contact form on our website, and those messages go straight into my inbox, and I promise you, I will reply. But all right, guys, I really appreciate you tuning in. I love you all, and you're not alone. Let's keep making it through our struggles together.